Welcome to Manage to Engage, the podcast from clearandopen.com, dedicated to the evolution of you because businesses grow when people do. Serving leaders, managers, and people who will be, helping you reach excellence in your work and achieve your personal goals at the same time. Sign up for the free course at clearandopen.com. Hi, it's Joseph, and thanks for tuning in to Manage to Engage, the podcast from clearandopen.com. This episode is part two of a three-part series excerpted from my course, Embodied Values and Virtues. We continue the conversation about the limits of repressing feelings, fear or otherwise, and the process of dead-ending principles by living them out to their logical extreme. Then we transition from courage to compassion and deconstruct some of the most common misconceptions of compassion that tragically stop us from embodying it. I offer weekly member webcasts, online courses, and mentorship at clearandopen.com because I think that with the right tools, anyone can eliminate the people, money, and time problems holding them back in business. And I share parts of these webcasts and courses on this show because I want to help you too. As I mentioned, this series is from the course entitled Embodied Values and Virtues, which you can find at courses.clearandopen.com. Thanks so much for listening. Yeah, one of the things I noticed in the exercise um, is the cultural conditioning that I experienced, and I'm assuming a lot of other people did, around fear and the fact that it doesn't exist. And for me, it was primarily from coaches and teachers and whatever, the whole positive psychology thing of the 80s and early 90s of like, fear doesn't exist, you can achieve anything, there is no risk. So I've found that, uh, and I bought in hook, line, and sinker. There is no entire, fear in this dojo, I, is yeah. there? Yeah. Right. So, and I bought into all that hook, line and sinker at the Mm -hmm. time. And I think that has led to me underestimating risk and fear later in life where the way you describe it, I'm like, wow, I actually don't feel what I think is a real interpretation of fear because my go-to is to discount it and say, oh, that doesn't exist. I can do whatever. That's just a knife. That's just a knife coming at me. Yeah. Um, yeah, which reminds me of my favorite news quote right now is, it was on the news last week in Spokane, stabbed man quoted, what are you going to do? Stab me? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like a guy had a knife and he was quoted saying, what are you going to do? Stab me with that knife? Right. He, he yep. tried to use Turns his out. mind yeah. to disbelieve yeah. <laughs> the reality of the situation. And guess yeah. what won? Reality. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Um, and what I want to say about that is because uh, I, I, I always want to err on the side of making this point. There's nothing wrong with attempting to repress fear or any other emotion. And there's nothing wrong with uh, the, the, especially the, what you refer to as, yeah, it was very big in the 80s positive psychology and the, well, I'm going to believe all of, of this about myself and I'm going to believe what makes me feel good and all that. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, what I would say is it's a necessary phase of development that anyone, in my opinion, will ultimately dead end in. So it's, um, it's a confusing thing because the governing dynamic of real growth is dead ending. And we don't like that. I was just uh, talking to someone yesterday about this. Like, imagine giving a six-year-old the game Connect Four. Remember Connect Four? Imagine giving them the game and saying, here's this game, 
And the point of the game is to play it enough so that you get bored of it and never want to play it again. The kid would be like, what? That sucks. I want something that's fun forever, right? No, no, no. It's, it's an unsophisticated game and you're going to grow out of it. And then you can go on to things like chess, which can be you know, interesting for the rest of your life. This is really a simplistic game. Uh, and the point is to, to dead, end, dead end with it. You would never say that to a kid. And yet that is the case, isn't it? If someone still loved Connect Four at like age 57 and played it like two hours a day, you'd have some questions, wouldn't you? Right? You'd have some questions. You'd be like, hmm, I don't know what's going on, but I think something is amiss here. That's not a sophisticated game. It says on the box, ages six to 12 or whatever, right? It says it on the box. So you're supposed to, I'm offering, in our soul growth journey, you're supposed to try on paradigms take them to their logical extreme, learn what you can from them, find the limits, and then go on to the next thing. And sometimes we do that within a lifetime. I certainly have. Some people will stay raised in a certain paradigm and they'll stay in that paradigm for their whole life. But if you are assiduous about your soul growth, then you will take whatever you're given and run it all the way out. And positive psychology and that, you know, jacking yourself up on with your own mind and your own will. I did that from age 23 to 28 or so, 29. And it was absolutely critical for me. So I wouldn't, I don't judge anyone for, for doing that. I just, I look at them the same way I would a child who's playing Connect Four. That's terrific. Enjoy that. Take it all the way. Master that damn game. And when you're bored of it, let's talk. Don't play it just a little bit. Master it. Take it all the way. Uh, and the, the problem, though, the way we're conditioned is if someone starts to hit the limits of a paradigm, whether that's a religion, a philosophy, a, a, a psychological modality, whatever, if they start to hit limits, what tends to happen is the authorities in the paradigm will say, you're not trying hard enough. Because the paradigm holder holds the paradigm as absolute truth, right? The priest says, this Christianity, this is what is, and it's appropriate for everybody. Tony Robbins says, this is what is, and it's appropriate for everybody. Whatever the modality is, it's absolute truth. It's not, they don't hold it as, this is appropriate for some people at some phases of their journey. So that way, so if it's not working for you, well, that must be your problem, not the paradigm's problem. Like maybe the person has hit a limit. Instead of seeing it as like, well, this is this, every paradigm, because everybody goes through, for example, a phase of being immersed in belief-based religions. Everybody goes through that. It's a necessary phase of development. The same way I'd say everybody goes through the necessary phase of development of atheism or agnosticism. It's also a necessary phase of development, which generally follows the belief-based religion stuff. Those are necessary phases of development. Just like a seven-year-old, if you pour a, a short, fat glass of water into a tall, narrow glass of water, and you go back and forth, they'll tell you every time, I think it's around six that it changes, six or seven, but a five-year-old, say, will say the tall, narrow glass of water has more water in it. And even though you're pouring it back and forth right in front of them, they can't get it. 
Now, are they stupid or bad or evil or wrong because of that? No, it's entirely appropriate for their phase of development. And we would also agree that there's a phase of development beyond that that's more mature. So if we can see that for children, why is it so hard for us to see that as adults? That trying on, for example, positive psychology, which is a deeply emotionally repressive paradigm that attempts to polish people's egos and minds so that they can manufacture an inner reality in order to be happy, from my perspective, is that, does that make it wrong? No, not at all. It's a necessary phase of development and there are certain things you learn from it because certain kinds of internal management are useful. Like if I'm an emotional wreck on a Thursday morning and I have to be able to competently teach this class, I'm glad I have the ability to set aside the emotional issues so that I can competently do this. Do you know how I learned that? Through positive psychology type stuff, right? So it's there when I need it, but I don't live there. I don't live there. So it happens today, I'm authentically in a good mood, but there are some Thursdays when I'm not. <laughs> so um, everything is good, everything is useful, and there's also a hierarchy of where you're headed, how it looks to me. I'm, I'm glad that came up. Ed, Ed has a reliable way of cueing me to, to remember to say things that I wanted to say like an hour ago. And then, yeah, thank you for that. It's just in your speaker notes, Joseph. So I'm just reading your speaker's <laughs> notes. So. You are my speaker notes somehow. Now you do that. Anything else before we talk about compassion, which is our topic for the day? Okay, so we've talked a little bit about conditioning today. <clears throat> Let's talk about our conditioning around compassion. What is your conditioning around compassion? What were you taught about it? I wasn't. <laughs> you were taught nothing about compassion? I don't feel, well, not directly, but like I actually think in some ways the opposite because I, I think in my household, there wasn't a lot of compassion. There was more criticism there than there was compassion. So I feel like when you grow up in a very heavy, criticized, judgmental type of environment, you don't get um, great learnings around empathy and compassion. Yeah. And that was the case for me too. I can relate. So by um, compassion was a term that was probably never used. Uh, and so you got a sort of uh, negative, by, by that I mean like an inverse, by, com by compassion never being spoken about, your conditioning about compassion was what? That it's not important, right? Oh. Mm -hmm. That it's not a value, it's not a virtue, that right. judging people sort of recreationally is just what it's like to be human practicing compassion like that's for you know the neighbors across the street or whatever that's not what we do here almost like it's a weakness right uh -huh. if you're gonna be strong if you're gonna be a strong person then you know that that yeah. compassion would be more of a weakness than a strength yeah yeah and in those kinds of families uh it may fit for you that what's going on underneath there is that uh the the people judge them judge themselves uh, via somehow how they judge other people, that you feel a sense of strength and uh, clarity, spine, by judging other people, and that makes you feel a certain way. 
Right. It's a comparison factor, right? Yeah. People do that to make themselves feel better about their own situation. Yeah. And oftentimes it's very superficial. Yeah. Yeah. So that's one kind of conditioning around compassion that it's a weakness. That's, I didn't think of that one. Thanks for bringing that up, Christine. Someone else wants to want to share? Yeah, I think mine is similar to Christine's. Well, I wouldn't say it was a critical childhood. It was a very competitive, um, debating childhood. And I, when you said, how are you conditioned compassion? I had to really think of when I heard, first heard the word compassion. And I'm a good Catholic girl. I think it was in church, right? There's always compassion talked about in church, but... For me, compassion has been something that I've had to train myself on. I think it's something that I think about every day. Kind of, you know, remember the, 10 years ago, can't remember who it was, it started with end every day with five things of gratitude. I kind of have to do that in the morning with compassion, enter every conversation with compassion for that person that I'm talking to. Mm-hmm. But, but then, like, my favorite thing about my dad. Um, and he never used the word compassion. He was a guidance counselor and he dealt with the worst kids, worst mm-hmm. kids in school. And he always said um, to think about what's happened to them before they got in front of you and be kind and careful with them. And I guess that's my grounding for compassion. It, it's, and that's the only thing I can remember in childhood that even gets close to compassion as i think about it now so do you remember any of the church conditioning around compassion that that's some really good stuff but what about the church stuff i don't know it just when i think when i hear the word compassion i think sitting in church and you know mm-hmm. as a kid we had first friday mass and then you had sunday with your family and i was gonna I say church too mind. Catherine. church is yeah. the first thing that popped in my mind like like bible school like going to sunday school mm-hmm. like bible belt i mean yeah Jesus was a compassionate person. Well, right. And, you know, for for a kid who was raised Jewish like I was, it was whenever I'm in a church and I see uh, uh, the depiction of Jesus crucified on a cross, like often quite large, you know, like three, four or five feet. um, That's a really powerful symbol. Uh, And I think that Catholic kids are conditioned to just they see that very early on. It's for me, it's grotesque, you know, because I didn't grow up with it. And what is that condition about compassion? So that's interesting, right? Because um, I've always struggled with the passions of the cross, uh-huh. right? And that makes no sense to me, it still doesn't, because passion is this warm, wonderful, exciting, calm word. And then the passions of the cross, like that is, God forbid that happened, right? So I always, uh, I always find that difficult um, to, reconcile so yeah well we could go down that rabbit hole and there's lots of contradictions but what about compassion and jesus on the cross what does it what does that symbol mean there's two billion christians in the world remember right and i think that for me i don't want to talk for the billions of us but it goes back to what you've talked about multiple times right that he died for our sins he was it was his compassion for us and for our life going forward that he's doing this, right? He's being so caring of us. Yes. So that was kind of pushed down yeah. on us. That, that, that the thing on the cross is he died for your sins, and it's a constant reminder of what he did for you, and you should be like him. Yeah. 
which is, that's the message, which is weird because, you know, in some sects of, of Christianity, certainly in Catholicism, he's the son of God. And you should be like that, but you're not the son of God. He's the son of God. Now, I hold it that we're all the, uh, the sons and daughters of God. So I would say he was a son of God, not the son of God. But in the paradigm, in a paradigm that says he was the son of God, and you should aspire to be like that. Well, that's kind of like telling a high school basketball player they should play like Michael Jordan. You know, like, how, what are the odds they're going to be able to pull that off? He was the best. So that's a recipe for guilt and shame that you're not behaving like this person did. And you owe him, by the way. This is one of the many ways that Christianity puts guilt into us. So notice the compassion there, and, and that's in um, whether you were raised uh, Judeo-Christian or not, it's in the culture because those religions are so big in the world that compassion, there's a, there's a should around it. You should be compassionate. So what I'd say is we've already spanned the, uh, the continuum here. Either you were raised that compassion, like Christine was talking about, and for myself it was also the case. Either you were raised that compassion makes you weak, or you were raised that you should be compassionate and you're not compassionate enough. Probably one of the others. Anybody have anything else? I know for me growing up, compassion was something that was done and it was an external exhibiting of compassion, but it wasn't real to me at home. Mm -hmm. How did you know? How did you experience that? Um, I, I didn't feel much of compassion. It's like, this is what you do to be compassionate. Okay, but, but how does that get in here? What does that mean? Well, you just do this. I, I remember being really young, probably six, and we went up to a, a wake and a funeral up in upstate New York, and it was a haul. It was a four-hour drive and good friend of the family's, but I remember driving home and the four of us in the car and my dad saying that that was a compassionate thing to do <laughs> <laughs> rather than- Like, check it off the list. Did it, exactly. Got the compassion this is, done. Here, here's the list. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this is great. Thank you guys for all for sharing that you're, you're serving to make the point that I want to talk about today. And that is that our conditioning is that compassion is something that we have to do. It's something that we have to practice. It's something that we have to will. This I offer prevents real compassion from actually transacting. Compassion like curiosity is an aspect of soul. It's something that's already there. It's something that's already there. It's something that you are. So when that's not flowing from essence to expression, uh, which people accurately see, you get paradigms like positive psychology, Christianity, whatever, with, with good intentions that say, okay, well, we think that compassion is a virtue. I agree with that. Terrific, but it's not happening enough. So we need to use our mind, will, and energy to get more of it going. You just lost me. Because that's a performance and that's not real compassion. The intention's in the right place. But as Brett was just saying, even as a kid, 
he felt the dissonance, and I think many of us do, we feel the dis- dissonance between what is said, but we can't really feel it. Like, okay, we, that was a compassionate thing to do. And Brett did a really good job just now um, sort of channeling from his childhood the confusion that that puts into us. Okay, so if I don't feel compassion, should I act compassionately then? If that's the case, which is the case for many things, like gratitude, which Catherine brought up, and all of these virtues, and actually this is a way to talk about all of these virtues, um, meta to the entire course, um, it's not about making yourself be anything. That's what the Buddhists would say is putting a head on your head. These virtues I offer are aspects of soul. They're something that you authentically would just naturally do. So if it's not happening, the question is why not and what is in the way? That's a deconstructive approach, which I talk about very often, rather than a constructive adding approach. It's not about practicing gratitude. It's not about practicing compassion. It's not about practicing even something like excellence. It's about asking the question, if that's already there in me, if I assume that, what's in the way of it? Why is it not transacting? Because if you don't do that, what you end up doing is strengthening the ego, strengthening the strategic self, strengthening the inauthenticity in you that had to arise in order to survive your childhood, and you end up with a better ego, which in some cases is the best people can do, and that's fine. But like I said before, you will hit a limit because I'm sure you all know someone who is an assiduous practicer of compassion or gratitude or whatever, and do you notice every once in a while they just completely lose it and blow up? Because it's unsustainable. Because it takes a lot of energy making yourself be a certain way every day. And this is why when people get old, they tend to revert to childlike and childish modes of being. They do this because the subroutines that are keeping them on their best behavior, they just don't have the energy anymore to keep going. So they just collapse and they become the you know, teenage or childish version of themselves because they can't keep it up anymore because they never actually accessed the soul-level virtues and transacted from essence. Instead, they were transacting from mind, from a kind of artifice, which, like I said before, is a necessary phase of development that most people have to try at and fail. I certainly did this life. I tried to turn myself into exactly who I wanted to be. Really, really hard failed miserably. It was one of the best failures of my life. Thanks for listening to Manage to Engage, the clear and open podcast. Join us next week when you'll be a little bit closer to who you're destined to be. Until then, know that clear and open is dedicated to the evolution of you because businesses grow when people do. If you're looking for more support on your journey, head over to clearandopen.com for even more tools, articles, and free resources. Thanks so much for listening. Bye for now.